from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk on a brisk, entirely December appropriate, but brisk, I must say, Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting with my friends, colleagues, faculty buddy here, collaborators on Wharton Moneyball for coming up on four years, Eric Bradley, Shane Jensen. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Good morning, Cade. Audie Weiner out and about. Audie Weiner will be back. Some combination of us are here. And ones, twos, threes, and fours every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, two hours to talk sports analytics. You can talk with us. Please do. Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Matty Datz, Matt Datz, boss man, producer, sitting by waiting for your phone call. You can also email Matt, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. He will pick up an email during the show. We have we are we have a history of responding to emails live during the show. You can get us that way. You can also email us between shows. We are replayed four or five times over the course of the next week, including today. Later today, we'll be we'll be played again. And if you're hearing, it's, it's, if it's not eight to ten Eastern and you're listening, you want to you want to reach out, just drop us a note. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Finally, you can follow us on Twitter. We're up there at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We also tweet about sports analytics during the course of the week. All sports. We had a tweet this week about tennis analytics. Our uh, our friend Jeff Sackman, who writes for The Economist and does his own thing, had a great piece on The Economist about about kind of metrics in advanced. He's really pushing the frontier on tennis analytics. So that's the kind of thing you can get it at W Moneyball. We have guests. We're excited. We have in-studio guest at the bottom of the hour. He's going to be around for more than just his half-hour segment, a friend of the show, Ty Hildebrandt, from the Solid Verbal podcast, talking college football, talking bowl confidence pool. And then at the top of the next hour, we have the founder, no less than the founder, of Pro Football Focus. If you don't know what they do, you need to, because they're kind of taking over the world of football analytics, especially on the pro side. And the founder's been with us before. We're looking forward to conversation with him again. We have open lines between now and then. I'm curious, as always, and I think there's lots to it, but I'm, fe- I'm curious, fellas, what has caught your eye? Well, what caught my eye is actually, you were as you were talking about, at W Moneyball, which is our Twitter handle. I tweeted something this week. So um, there's a sport that recently broke an all-time record this week. Many of you may not know it. Is it the uh, payroll record? Uh, no, it's not the just, payroll. Oh, no, just, the Yankees have had a much higher payroll than that. All right. No, no, no. As right. long not, as it's right. not hot dog eating. Eric. It's not hot dog well, eating. I kind of wish it was. No, it's not hot dog eating. So in Major League Baseball, it is a Major League Baseball record, though. You are correct. Okay. We just let into the Hall of Fame the worst pitcher in the history of the Hall of Fame <laughs> on two different dimensions. Oh, so we're my. talking about Jack Morris. Okay. I tweeted about this at W Moneyball. Wow. I mean, you, there's no, obviously you there's, do speech writing. There's lots of metrics that obviously one could evaluate a pitcher on. ERA is not a bad one. It's not the only metric. He has the worst ERA of any pitcher in the Hall of Fame. It's not even close. Yeah. His career ERA is 3.9. I mean, that's not a particularly great ERA. 
and his war is the lowest of any player. So if I told you that a player that of got any it, player that got into the Hall of Fame, I mean a modern not, not era pitcher. player, 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 okay. his war all time rank is four hundred and thirteenth. So I how, how many people are in the Hall of Fame? Probably the players in the, from the modern era, probably in the two hundred range. Okay. Um, you know, all time, I think it's in the three hundreds. But you know, if you have to, take- I mean, I mean, yes, obviously, Jack Moore. So there's a lot. His postseason success, I think, is what sort of people think about. Okay, right? so I, remind, I mean, remind you know, me what I, he did. Remind me what he did postseason. Well, he had this amazing game seven when he played for the Twins in the World Series, and he basically had a shutout for ten innings. For ten innings. High, le- high leverage situation. Well, that, no, it, no. All, so my only comment was: Let me just say, I t- did tweet about yeah. the fact, and th- this was an ESPN article. I retweeted an ESPN yeah. article that said he was the worst Hall of Famer. But what I also said is, if we're going to let him, and this got a lot of reaction on Wharton Money at W Moneyball, which was great. I said, if you're going to let him in, let's talk about three other pitchers who also should go in. I started with, and you'll be even proud of me, yeah. Kurt Schilling. Yep. You know, I mean. If Jack Morris is in the Hall of Fame, Kurt Schilling's numbers are a lot better than Jack Morris's Agreed. numbers. Agreed. Andy Pettit should be in the Hall of Fame. If Both gonna... those guys have Is Andy Pettit right? eligible already? I mean, Mike Messina should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, he was my third okay. pitcher. So, my hold friend. on real quickly. Does Schilling and, Schilling and Pettit have uh, uh, drug issues? No. no. Well, Pettit that? does. Well, Pettit, 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 Pettit had HGH. Yeah, he yeah. confessed to it later in yeah. his life. Schilling, no? Not no. that I know of. Schilling's got... Issues, <laughs> but they're. Do we want to they talk about politics today as well? <laughs> they do not seem to be pharmaceutical. But Schilling's got a lot of. I mean, Schilling's very unpopular but, with the media, all this but, type of stuff. I, it's so, a good, I mean, it's a good. It's a good point, Kate. But you agree with me? Like a career pissing off the people that are now going. He, he expects to vote for him. But you do agree with me that if. Jack Morris in the Hall of Fame. You can make a oh, very yeah. good argument for Messina, Pettit, and Schilling. Before, I'm not saying I would have made an argument at least for Messina and Schilling. I think I, I think the argument for Messina and Schilling was very strong, even prior to this Jack Morris precedent that you're kind of setting up here. But I agree with Jack Morris factoring in, especially given that clearly the motivation for his inclusion the rationale for Jack Morris's inclusion must be based on kind of this extra postseason heroics category that we don't, you know, we kind of, I think in the Hall of Fame, we've often talked about how you've, you can either get in through longevity or exceptional let's peak be performance, clear how, and then this, like, postseason thing is kind of like this extra kind of, like, tiebreaker or whatever. Jack yeah. Morris, it's got to be the, just postseason. Well, let's be clear how Jack Morris got in. Yeah. They used to call it the Veterans Committee. They don't call it that anymore. Yeah. I forget what they call it now. Right, he wasn't actually voted he, in he, by the writers. Correct. And by the way, there was a second player who was voted in, who we could also debate whether he's a Hall of Famer was Alan Trammell. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, they Te- love the Tigers this year. <laughs> well, tell me about that, because I saw, some, I saw some noise about Trammell versus Jeter that apparently, setting aside presumably like World Series rings, stats were pretty comparable. Is that right? I don't, I don't know these things, but like... Well, I mean, Alan ma- Trammell has somewhere... I'm, I'm just guessing a number. I'm going to say, and our listeners, please call in and correct me. I'm going to say he has between 2,000 and 2,200 career hits. Derek Jeter is number seven all-time in hits. I mean, I understand one's longevity, um, I don't think Alan Trammell has a 300 lifetime batting average. Certainly, Jeter had a 300 lifetime batting average. Um, so the answer is no. I, I don't think their numbers are comparable. Maybe our producer Matt Datz can put it up on your screen. I would say Derek Jeter's numbers are not and, comparable. And Jeter again had not just the postseason rogues, but he's gone this extra mile. He's done something unprecedented in baseball. Is that he's gone on after retiring for helping to the still Yankees. help out his team <laughs> to still. 
Okay, basically so tear no. his current Alan team Trammell apart and to Alan help Trammell. out the no, Yankees. I thought, I thought the comparison you were going to make, which a lot Derek of people Jeter's have, a, Yankee hero. So a let, lot of people are going to make the Alan Trammell Phil Rizzuto comparison. Except Rizzuto run a lot of rings, but that's comparable so I, in terms I, of numbers. I, I basically I should give David Barry credit or blame for this. He's co-author of Wages of Wins, and I know he had a bit of a, a battle on Twitter about this. But I want to follow Shane's comments. So, so Jeter, as many know, is now part owner of the Marlins. Yeah, and they just salt, le- salt leadership ownership group down there. Where yeah. would you where would you put Giancarlo Stanton in the current order of like? Baseball players, or at least position players, hitters. I mean, he just won the MVP. <laughs> so I mean, one top of, five, top five player in the league, yeah. and and yeah. he more or less forced a trade to correct. He refused by, by accepting that contract. He eventually forced a situation, just like a Rod, by accepting that contract. He eventually forced a situation where, um, because his team's um, doesn't care about winning. Um, he had to be. Well, traded. let's be clear. Let's be clear. The Marlins have done, are doing, if you want to call it this, are doing the same strategy they've done two other times in their yeah. history, which is they get good. Yep. Then they dump all their talent, get yeah. a bunch of young players, and every seven or eight years they reemerge. As you know, they won two World Series. That was a long time ago no, now. I, I agree with you, but you could make an argument that since they're not in a big money market, they're not going to have a hundred-plus million-dollar payroll, that they're going to go for a $60 million payroll. Getting rid of Stanton, who would be half of that payroll, yeah. is a step to getting a bunch of young players and you know trust the process. In five years, they hope to be a title contender based on their talent. That's what they did twice before. And that's what they're hoping to do again. It has not worked the last couple iterations it has of not. this. I agree. Um, but sure. Yeah, I mean, and I guess this is, I mean, if you're a small market team, you could go that way. I mean, I, I kind of, I guess, for whatever reason, prefer the sort of Tampa Bay, Oakland strategy to going this way, which is recognize your young players when they're very talented, lock them up. Especially um, pitchers. Especially pitchers. Um, don't sign a, a player to obscene contract that you know you're not going to be able to afford because the Yankees will bail you out in a couple years. Speaking of small market teams, look at this jacket I'm wearing today. Um, is this boy. Sesame Street? I like the letter C. Is there <laughs> oh, it's a, Cleveland, man, right? Yeah, it's swag from the Indians, ah, man. Yeah. Hey, but no, was, no, let me just say, the Indians, another small market team, have figured it out. Right. They're working at a, almost a $100 million deficit yeah, each right. year. And they're doing that through running a better organization. There, there is a, there, exactly. There's a way to exist as a small market team that does not imply being a farm team for the Dodgers and Yankees. And Red Sox. <laughs> I'll throw the Red Sox in there as well. You know, I mean, like, there's certain small market teams that just exist, I guess, to kind of hold players until the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers need them. Um, or don't need them, as the case may be. Um, and then there's other small market teams that actually make a go of it. So what does it mean when you add Stanton well, to a team that made the ALCS that is, last year? So this is what I was going to ask you guys. It means they're highly probable to make it back to the ALCS. Yeah, highly probable. But I was going to ask you guys. So now there are I'm going to list five pairs of players that have played together who are prolific home run hitters, and you tell me which pair you'd like to have. Okay. okay? So here they are. Mantle and Maris. Those were prolific home run hitters. Ruth and Gehrig. Mays and McCovey, McGuire and Conseco, Stanton and Judge. Oh man, you missed the you missed the best one. Who? <laughs> Ramirez and Ortiz. Oh, come those on. guys hit bombs. I mean, I mean, in terms of actual number of right, home I'm runs, fine. you gotta I'm I'm ha- look it up. They I'm gotta be in the put up. They, they well, over that little that little league fence. Well, how about the fact field? that they were both five hundred? Well uh, you're right. That's well good done. point. Well they, done. Look, they were both five hundred home run hitters. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, matter of fact. 
uh, the, none of the other two, none of the other set. Well, Mays and McCovey were both 500 home run hitters. Ruth and Gehrig were not. Gehrig's career I know was nothing, cut short. I know nothing, but I want Maris and Mantle. I don't know why. How's that for a, how's that for a... Who would you pick? You're a baseball guy. Here's again the pairs. Mantle and Maris, Ruth and Gehrig. Mays, I don't mean as players. I just mean as home run hitters. Mantle and Maris, Ruth and Gehrig, Mays and McCovey, McGuire and Conseco, Ramirez and Ortiz, or Judge and Stanton. Ruth and Gehrig. Ruth and Gehrig. I mean, you know, but mostly just on. I mean, Babe Ruth. I mean, this is and this is not necessarily when he was playing with Gehrig, but I mean, he was hitting more home runs than teams. So, so speaking, yeah. speaking of Babe Ruth, you, you, let me. In let me, terms of I'm standard deviations away from like their nor their yeah, kind of his their norms. Do you have an answer to this? Do you have a position on this? Yeah, I do. There's not an answer, but what do you think? What is your preference? I, I would go with what uh, Shane said, which yeah. is if you look at how many standard deviations they yeah. were above the mean, that's a way and better way of saying it. For both players, Ruth and Gehrig were far superior. But let me just say, Stanton and Judge were the two leading home run hitters this last year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. by a far, a fairly far exceedance over the others. They may have had, I don't know who, did, I mean, we know Judge hit, I'm going to say 53, Stanton I think hit 59. Was there anybody in the mid-40s even? Like, was there a 10 home run gap? I mean, there could have easily been a 10 home run gap between Judge and the third. So, I mean, we have two guys that are well above yeah, the I can't remember how many Goldschmidt hit or, or Maybe or in some the low 40s, guys, yeah. 44, 45. But then they've got, like, Gregorius, who's hitting, like, 30 home runs. They've Sanchez. got Sanchez. Yeah, I, mean, I that... would be excited about this and intrigued if it weren't the friggin' Yankees. Well, of I mean, course. No that's, I, mean, I mean, honestly, every year. that Yeah, that's right. So on the, ba- on the- I, I do I do like the fact that I no longer I mean the Yankees were making me uncomfortable over the last couple of years. Well, because you like them because they were building well, it the right way. Because they were exactly. I'm like they're like they're building through youth and they're like you know got all these. But now at least they're back to the same old Yankees. Wharton Moneyball, Cade, Eric, and Shane this morning open lines. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. I need a quick primer. We're going to only do a little bit more on baseball, fellas. Squeeze it in while you can. Who is this player that's going to both pitch and hit? Otani. What, what is this all about? He looks really exciting. Well, is that well, actually he, going to happen? Yeah. I mean, Who, I, who's he going to play for? The, the Angels. Angels. Oh my Angels. goodness! So that's that. That people should actually be excited about Otani and Trout. If they could somehow manage to put a team together where we get to see Mike Trout in the playoffs, this is something we've been robbed of because Mike Trout is, I think, unambiguously the best baseball player of this generation. Unambiguously. Um, and we have been kind of he he is. Not gotten the kind of prominence. I mean, obviously, anybody who follows baseball closely knows this, but he's not gotten that kind of popular prominence as somebody like a Derek Jeter would have. Should he should have that kind of prominence? Except he plays in Anaheim and he uh, has never made the playoffs. Right. Well, I'm just going to ask the question: When you say can he do it? I mean, obviously, the plan right now is that he's going to DH yep. on days that he's not pitching. We've talked about fatigue. An injury all the time. So the question is, I understand DH is people say, oh, the person just sits on the bench the whole game. And it, No. I mean, he's going to have to work on his craft of hitting, especially on off days. What will happen in the physical wear and tear? You know, normally pitchers throw on off days and they rest on off days, but he's going to be playing DH. And maybe eventually he may play the field some. Right. So what will happen? It's over- really hard to speculate because we don't know. I mean, it's going to be super intriguing to gauge how good he is as a Major League Baseball hitter and how good he is as a Major League Baseball pit- pitcher. Yeah. And that'll sort of determine it. If it turns out he's just this lights out pitcher, it's unlikely they'll they'll probably somehow convince him not well, to which hit. One? Let me ask you a question. So this is a great question. Let's imagine right now he had 320 in the Japan League where he played. Which would you rather have? If he was a 320 hitter 
and power hitter, all the yeah, things he did. Yeah. Or let's imagine he's a you know eighteen win pitcher. Eighteen win pitcher. Okay, I so mean, you would take, well, I, I so if you had to pick like one or the other, you more, think they will keep him pitching more? than I think hitting. that is a more limiting. So here's another question: limited thing. How how far down the list of possible DHs does he need to fall before you keep him there, just to preserve some flexibility? You know, teams are doing more and more of this, playing players at different positions. There's, mm-hmm. there's value in being able to move a guy's around. Yeah. And so, would you and he might, does have experience playing the well, outfield. So, you, just, so I just, mean, just to point no, well, just to point out that you you would settle for him not being the best DH you could have. If it gave your roster more flexibility, because it saves a roster well, spot. It, well, let's remember though, one out of every five days, he he's will not, not going to be there. Somebody he's not going to be the DH. DH. That cuts so into that. The good news is that he already gets, you know, the. And then I, my think, guess I, is, I think the intriguing thing is: is he? What if he hits well enough that on those days where he pitches, you do not, you opt not to have the DH. Oh, right. Oh, why not? That, why not? You don't need a DH. This is, I'm saying it's a huge advantage to the rosters. They space to, to the Angels. They save a roster spot. One out of every and, five interleague games, they are going to be hooked up too. <laughs> All right. So, uh, speaking of Los Angeles baseball, did you see this thing that came out yesterday about you Darvish tipping his pitches in the series? And I was very proud because if you remember, we had Rick Peterson on the show right after those one after one of Darvish's bad outings. Yep. And the first he, one, the game one, I think. And all. Rick said he had taught, he had he had heard from his people that he was tipping his pitches. Mm. So Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated broke this yesterday that that it was that he was by the way he whether he adjusted he's holding the ball he's out of the stretch holding the ball on the side he gets the call from the catcher and if he adjusts it it's a breaking pitch or vice versa and if he doesn't adjust it it's a, it's it's not a breaking ball. And and the Astros knew this, and they rocked him. He only lasted ten outs. How has he gotten this far with this not right. being it's somehow remarkable. a thing? It's remarkable. Well, it's also it's not even just that the Astros would notice this. How would the Rangers? I mean, how would his own team not notice not it? notice this? Right. You, you mean Dodgers at this Dodgers, point? Sorry, but, but sorry, before Dodgers. The, before yeah. before sorry, the Rangers. Dodgers. How would they not know this? Yeah. And what about the all, Cubs? And all, about all, the all Cubs? you need is one 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 person in the organization going from like the Raiders or Dodgers to yeah. or, or Astros to so, one of these so other you, guys. So, I, I mean, given that you think this would be the world's worst kept secret, but yeah, anyway, look, the Rangers didn't figure it out, the Dodgers didn't figure it out, the Cubs didn't figure it out. So, you, at some point, you got to give the Astros credit. Yep. At some point, this is something else that the Astros did right last year, essentially. Guys, before we go too far, I want to ask for your reactions to the election last night and not the politics of it so much as the projections of it. Were you did you pay much attention? I did, but I mean it was hard to actually kind of get any even I, I kind of felt like even Nate Silver was you could almost feel frustration through I think his his verbiage that it, it was all over the place. It was for so sure. unpredictable. For sure, for sure. There was, and, it was hard to kind of get any traction on what but, would happen. But that's 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 helpful, right? Whenever no, whenever no. Nate, the best election forecaster out there, is telling everybody, look we don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. He said, if I had to bet, if you gave me straight up and I had to bet, I'd take more. But if you gave me three to one odds, I'd take. He was good yeah. about expressing uncertainty. And I think he expressed any. I think he expressed uncertainty correctly. And I mean, he turned out to be correct in the sense that it was essentially a toss-up. I was actually right? following 538 last night during the. No, I'm, so this is your classic what's called multi-homing. I'm having CNN on the screen. But I'm watch. I'm actually online on 5:38 because they yeah. were doing real time updating. Yeah. Actually, it was ahead of CNN's updating. I will say. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna top you one. I had CNN on the TV, 5:38 uh, on my phone, and I'll give you the best place to vent. Well, last I went night. to New York Times. New also. York Times. On I was the, on, on the both. Computer. I had yeah. two screens open: the there New York you. Times and 5:38. So and it was nerds. <laughs> no, it was. <laughs> I'm it just was, kidding. Of course, I did too. This well, is the point. It was fascinating because. 
you know, in in sports, basketball started, I think, and now football's got quite a bit of in game in game betting. So, you know, historically, it's all been about who's going to win the game, and there's all the market ahead of time. And then once the game starts, bets are in, and that's it. Yep. And now there's been in-game models that have be- that have become a huge thing. So people spend probably – I know gamblers who's put more money into second-half predictions than they do. Right. Okay, so el- elections now have, have at least the possibility of introducing this. So yeah. we, had, we had about two and a half hours of returns last night between the close of the polls and the declaration at 1030 Eastern time. And over that time, you know, votes are trickling in, and yet— And they're not trickling in in kind of a random random. way. That's 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 the the great part about it is it's like, you know, you really have to—you learn stuff about Alabama. Yeah, no, I know more Like it has cities, for example. (laughs) Come on. I did not know that. Come on. I did not not know that. You did know that. Fun fact about Alabama. (laughs) Well, I wanted to make two connections between last night's election and sports and statistics and business, which is Mm -hmm. our show. So the first— I'll build directly on what Cade just said. So as I was watching the election, just like we do, you, you'll remind, you'll see when I make this connection that we do this all the time on Moneyball. Sixty percent of the vote was in, and Roy Moore was up by fifty thousand votes. So what I'm doing is the same calculation I've done and we've done many times here on the show. For the remaining part of the season, what does Jones's vote share win have to be? For him to overcome this deficit, we do this all the time. I, well, I, I, if, I, if we're talking about you doing it, I presume you phrase it as what kind of momentum <laughs> does Jones need to overcome? I meant I, more. I was thinking non-stationarity, well, of course. Okay, but right, since well, the but that's that's our new this, this is more it. of a Cade Massey issue because since the election was over, we could debate whether the psychological process of momentum would mean anything <laughs> since it wasn't live. But about, that's e- true. Equally debate worthy. But that was. <laughs> But that was that was the one thing I was asking, and that's related to what we do here on Moneyball. The second thing I was thinking about was, since I'm a marketing professor, when we teach people about how stores make profits, we say there are two things that matter to how a store makes profit. One is margin. How much money do you make on each unit? There's a margin in the election. And second, what we call turnover, which is how many units are you selling? So I started to make the connection. As they were going through the different counties in Alabama, there were two things that mattered margin, who was winning by how much, and turnover, or turnout. So to me, there was a direct connection both between the election last night and our show, and I apologize for everyone that follows us on at W Moneyball. I was going to tweet those two points last night, but I got tired, and then I started watching the Sixer game. But I was going to watch those two. That's a really inspiring end to the story. (laughs) There's going to be probably an SI story about that story. It was a big win, but I'm saying there's a there was a direct connection between last night and Moneyball yeah, th- and, yeah, and business. Did, so you just, saved it for the show. I you did save it. your energy for I, your thank for I, the I, show. We just, we just got evidence of there being a limit to Eric Bradlow's capacity. I don't know that prior I've never to that heard story. Of it. I, never, I know it, it doesn't. We've never even, seen the. It limit. does not pass the smell test that Eric Bradlow got tired. But I, okay. I, I would have expected there to be a fourth screen up somewhere with the Sixers <laughs> game on. Come on, I you, wanna, didn't, you didn't max your screen capacity. I assume your home. I've never. It's just like that wall of TVs <laughs> thing. Every like it's, it's like a producer studio, basically. It's just got a wall of TVs. Yeah, I, I, I'm more the, like. No matter, man's lair, basically. no matter what room you go into, there is a TV. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. image that I have. of all yeah. the well, things you guys have said. Home. The last thing Cade said is the only part that's actually yeah, true. That's, that, that's just a well-designed home. Okay, let me just say that the the calculus that Eric just walked through is something that they're always talking about. You know, the guys on CNN mm-hmm. are going to be talking that through, and you're thinking it. And for years, I've wanted in a model. And last night was the first time I've seen somebody actually credibly 
put it into the model. So we don't have to just talk about it. You should be able to build right. a model that incorporates yep. all these considerations as you go. And the New York Times site, the upshot part of New York Times, did that last night. And it was it was distilling down into the best they could yeah. all these things that people are talking about. And they it was fascinating because they were saying it was so cool to watch because more was ahead as the vote, you know, at, at, at 50% in, 60% in, 70% in. But the whole time, the Times was projecting that by the time we get to the but end, Jones based, was going to win. Based on who still hasn't turned in their votes, we're going to see Jones ahead. Yeah. And then at the end, I mean, it was, you know, it really was like a sporting event watching this from 8 o'clock to 10 30. It was. Like, was. Uh, they called it like the 93rd or 94th precinct reporting, which was great. Right? Late, right? Yeah. So late. Yeah. And, and it was, but, but, you had, if you were following it on the upshot at New York Times, you right. had better vision into what had happened than if you weren't. If you weren't following it, it must have been like someone coming from behind at the Kentucky Derby where just you're seeing the horse make up ground and make up ground and you can't quite tell whether they're yeah. going to get it done and they just clip it at the nose. The New York Times is like watching the Derby with, with an in-game model saying, yes, based on what we see so far, that horse is going to fade and this runner-up well, horse the only, is going to win. The only part of uncertainty also is even within a district where they would report like 60% of the vote in, you don't even know. I mean, there's heterogeneity even within, within a region. The district. So then yep. you're saying, is the vote share that we're observing now, let's call it 70 30, is that going to hold for the remaining 40%? I mean, that ideally, come you'd in. be so, able to break this right. mall down to the polling station or something like that, yeah, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. But there's, you know, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. And, but one, you, you know, we talk about non stationarity. I mean, you don't know how. You, you, you have to have in your model trends from the past, and yet you don't know whether, how, to what extent the past is going to well, predict especially that. with this rather exceptional election, rather right? Rather exceptional on multiple yeah. dimensions. The, thought, the thing also um, I thought was valuable what CNN did from a statistical perspective is they have a guy, gentleman, I think his name is John King, if I've got his name right, who's you know, always up at the screen. He was pointing. What does John do 50 other weeks of the year? What does Mel Kuyper do? Maybe they hang out together. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. no, Mel Kuyper does a lot 50, more. 50 weeks a year, they're just traveling. They should have a travel show for those other 50 weeks of the year. Mel Kuyper, John King, that's perfect. Anyway, Well, let me continue. go back to my statistical point, um, although I like your comment. Um, what he was doing was he was comparing the win share or the vote share in each county to both the most recent presidential election to say a bench, he was calling, you know, over and under performing, and also Roy Moore's past election and if you'd like, the last time there was a Senate election. Totally. So he was using those as baselines that, right. to say, and matter of fact, if you went to the New York Times site, which you did too, right below the vote share, and also they had this on 538, they had by county how much Jones or Moore was exceeding both their predictions and yeah. the previous election. So you could kind of see for all of the big counties, they ranked ordered by the size of the county. Jones was outperforming the predictions. Right. So the the, the victory, as far as far as I'm concerned, is that for the first time, someone put all of that into a model. So right. all of these considerations, which are modelable, and they're great to talk about, and John King does a real service mm-hmm. by talking about it up there that way. But someone finally distilled it into a model, and we may be giving it too much credit because it called it right last night, and and we'd like to not be doing it just for that reason. But the process, and we've been there's been a kind of a need for that kind of thing. For a while. Even a model that represents the uncertainty is a good thing, right? That, well, I, you know, I don't know whether it did that. I mean, mm. I think we have a hard time with models of properly representing how uncertain it is. And you have to think about it. I mean, it's just a shift to go from saying we're trying to figure out the best estimate, trying to figure out the best estimate, and then have to completely change. It's orthogonal to say, and now we need to explain the noise yeah. around that estimate. Yeah. 
The question also is, when you talk about uncertainty, we can talk about what's the form of uncertainty. In other words, is it because people will say one thing and do something else? Is it because we're not reaching the right people? So there, what's interesting to me as a statistician is when you say uncertainty, there's normal sampling variability, meaning, you know, you didn't sample everybody. You did a random sample, so there's a standard error. There's who are you reaching in this poll? And then there's also, given conditional on reaching somebody, is what they say they're going to do, what right. they actually do. Yeah. Those, to me, are probably the three largest forms of uncertainty, and all of them that's, add up to the total uncertainty. Well, that's just on the polls. That's yes, just on I the polls. Just never, trying, n- never mind the fundamental. Right, right. I was just referring to the polls and why there's wide variation, because there's so, multiple sources of uncertainty. So, guys, we only have a couple of minutes at the end of this half hour. One more major story I want to get your reactions to, and that is you got local relevance, and it's Carson Wentz. You cannot you, – for weeks you haven't been able to get into a cab in this town without talking Eagles. Oh. And now it's like a funeral when you get into these cabs. Well, no, no, no. I was in an Uber last night, and the radio, sports radio was on, and oh, my goodness. They're doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves they this are. Foles guy they is going to just – Well, you this know, we're, it, we're really built on defense. You know, Foles just has to have a couple – come on, They're giving guys. the keys to the car. I'm, I'm, what a car. What a car it is. Well, what a you, car. One, and I mean, I feel for him. My heart goes out to him because it is over. The, the one number that's... <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, you vote, you've touted... I mean, obviously, there's Massey... Touted? Bad word. No, no. We haven't there's Massey, no, let me, There's Massey Peabody, but you have complimented the ESPN uh, Football Power Index many mm-hmm. times. Oh, it's great. Yeah. And if you actually look, the story that surprised <clears> me the most this week, if it hadn't been for baseball, I would have jumped... The Hall of Fame, I would have jumped on that one. They only have the Eagles' win percentage in each of their last three games. And that's not the same as winning the Super Bowl. Only going down 4% in each of those games mm-hmm. because of the Wentz injury. So I wanted to ask you, Cade, how are you guys at Massey Peabody thinking about the impact of this injury? And do you have any... Because I'm just saying, the ESPN Football Power Index only decreased the Eagles' chance in each of the next three games by 4%. From 78 to 74, 71 to 67, and from like 59 to 55. Does, doesn't that seem a little low to you that it's only a 4% decrease? Can you remind me of their, who they're playing those games? Um, I know the Cowboys is yeah, one. Gi- Giants, Giants, Raiders, Cowboys. Giants, Raiders, Cowboys. Yeah. So, I mean. All right. So wait, I was saying, do you want to now build a model? Wait a second. This is a good point. You want to build a model that adds another layer of complication in it where injury is now going to interact with who you're playing? No. No. No, it's but just, that's it, what he just said. He asked who they're playing, so I mean, he, he must want wanted, a more complicated he more model. He just, no, it, it's it's more that like, it, you know, going down from seventy-one to sixty-seven percent, big deal because they're still relatively yeah. like two-thirds likely to win the game in a playoffs. That five, per, like, even mm-hmm. if it's only a five percent difference, the Carson Wentz effect. Um, then you know, in the playoffs, that's going to be 50, you know fifty four down to forty nine or fifty three down to forty. So it, let me let me just say we against good teams, it's going to really. So he skipped from do you believe the four to does it matter? Yeah, which is, at this time of year is a very relevant question. We we dropped the Eagles about three points, and it's in your pro- rate rankings. Yeah, in, in the, the number in, in your rating. Ranking. So you can translate that in, and four you know, percent may not be the worst answer in the world, but it's also hard to. We don't have a good number on a quarterback this early in his career. It's really hard. So the only injuries that we consider explicitly are quarterback injuries, which means we have to have a point value associated with every quarterback that might play in an NFL game. It's easier to do that once a guy's played eight years than it is after he's played a year and a half. So Wentz Foles probably more than a three-point difference. It's just hard to say this early mm-hmm. on. I mean, even Foles mm-hmm. is relatively young. 
but we dropped them for our for our model the best we could do and yeah. then we're constrained it's hard to do this was about a three point drop. And I mean, part to the, I will say they, it is probably the best, well, they have one of the best backup situations in the league. And so, I love, sure. and I love Shane's point. It matters where you are on the curve. 70 to 67 is not the same as going from 50 to 47. And we could debate it might be more at the 50% point. So yeah, it's a right. great point. That's right. All right, fellas, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at siriusxm dot com. You can follow us if you're on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, you should be. If you're on Twitter, catch us at at w moneyball at w moneyball. Tweeting all things sports analytics over the course of the week. Following our guests, keeping you apprised of what's going on around that world. We are moving into the segment of the show where we have guests. We have guests on a couple of the next slots. Uh, we're going to talk college football in this half hour. The This time of year, fellas, is Bulls, of course. We wrapped up the last regular season game last weekend here in Philadelphia. Army-Navy, did you catch any of I that? I did. I did. In the snow, it was fun. I was down at in Tampa uh, for the Buccaneers-Lions game, which was a real important game. I, I can imagine why you travel hey, halfway I mean, across the country. The Lions part of it is kind of important right now. They're it was important the for the Lions. Yeah. It was important for yeah. the Lions, and it was good for the Bucs. Another loss means a better draft pick, so that wasn't so bad. <laughs> I like how you've transitioned there. That's great. But... but um, I did see the snow going on, and of course, the snow also, as I was watching during the Bucks game, the snow that went on in Buffalo during that game. That uh, was incredible to see. That was incredible. Yeah, they, they won up to Philadelphia, didn't they? Adam Vinatieri kicking field goals. I know, I know, that's a trip down memory lane. I know. That well, guy is still going. It, the snow, still kicking field goals in the snow. He must be, impressive. What, 50 years He's old? He's 44. Oh, yeah. my God. And it's by the way, impressive. in our last segment, thanks for bringing that up, I have created a list for the six or seven major sports of people with extreme longevity, and I'd like to ask your opinion. We'll transition after mm. we, in the last half hour about who's most impressive among this list. So I've as, compiled as a long, list of every sport. As long sport. as Tom Watson and the British Open is the top of the Watson list. Watson is we'll on be, there. We'll Watson okay. is on there for golf. <laughs> okay. He is. But... Um, so I, you wanted to talk about bowls. What's exciting for me this year is that there's actually nine bowl games. I'm pretty confident I'm going to watch every single minute oh, oh. of every one of them. So I don't have any idea whether that's nine. high or low. It's Eric. hard yeah, for in me. The, are you, are you in the Eric Batman no, no, no. <laughs> I assume it was all of them. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going there are 41 games. Why you who watch no, every you sporting have to event. listen to what I said. Mm. I said there are nine games for which I'm going to watch. All of them. Again, right. I will watch idea. the other 30 games, but I'm saying I will not necessarily just, watch all of uh, them. There's, there's been hints at your own, like, mortality or, like, whatever, like, like fallibility several times in the show, and I just yeah. refuse to accept it. No. I mean, I thought, I mean, infinite capacity means you watch all Every, games of all bowl games. All, all minutes. All, play, all minutes of all things. Okay, Eric, what are your nine that you're so fired yeah. up about? All right. So, I've all, since, you know, the heyday of Boise State, I'm always interested in Boise State, especially yeah, Eric, when they play Eric the bigger team. Eric likes to say that the best college football game of all time. Was at Oklahoma? Was it an Orange Bowl or Fiesta Bowl? Oklahoma, Boise State. I don't know. 10, well, ten years ago, eight yeah. Years well, ago. I mean, they won the game on a hook and ladder play with ten seconds left, and then t- they went for two, and they scored it on a Statue of Liberty play. Yeah, just amazing. So that, that was is pretty. And, and they beat Oklahoma, which really made which meant which meant <laughs> a lot. But either way, Oregon, Oregon, Boise State in the Las Vegas Bowl is interesting sure, to me as a game. Sure. Yep. Um, TCU Stanford in the Alamo Bowl oh, yeah. is definitely of interest to me. 
Um, in the Cotton Bowl, we have Ohio State and Southern Cal. You know, that's a pretty game. That's a pretty picture you got there. But, you know, we have it like at a 12-point line. I don't I don't uh, think we're alone. Okay, but, that that's but either way, I'm still a, interested yeah. in the game. Yep. Um, I'm interested in Penn State-Washington in the Fiesta Bowl. I like that game. It's an interesting game. I like Wisconsin-Miami. I like that game yeah, as a game. Yeah. I like Auburn UCF. That's probably oh, it's yeah. the number one game I'm actually interested in. Why, why, why so much? Because I want to see UCF to be crowned national champion <laughs> after they beat Auburn, who beat Georgia and who beat Alabama. Okay, if on. they beat Auburn, can we all agree that they at least forget the BCS national champion? Can we agree if they beat Auburn? It might be difficult for the AP or the whatever it is, the other poll, the coaches poll, whatever, to actually leave them out and not having them as a split champion in that. No, if they I'm, beat Auburn, wait, do we not, still do not, that? This is yeah, they not do 1982. It. They do it. This is no, not they're still polls, and they give out awards for it. No, I don't but, think but, it's going to do it, man. But Eric, what are the thirteen and zero, and they beat Auburn, who beat Georgia and Alabama? You don't think so? But Trans- besides Auburn, who did they directly beat? Yeah, transitivity doesn't Yeah, it work. doesn't, right. Most uh, folks don't even find it very compelling anymore. Come on, you're just being provocative. By the way, the, no, line, I'm not. the line on that game is nine and a half points. We make it 13 UCF points. is only favored by 13 <laughs> in your mind? That's it? <laughs> Due to their undefeated oh, I record. I can't Obviously believe it. Obviously, they'd be favored in that game. I can't believe what that. What else can you do? Uh, Spe- really? Speaking of Auburn and speaking of elections, did you see Charles Barkley down there at the Jones headquarters rally I last did, night? the pride of Alabama. Yeah, he's got, he's got Alabama love, for he sure. He does, and then Three other games I'm interested in, of course, are LSU Notre Dame, which is an interesting yeah. game, Oklahoma Georgia, and of course Alabama Clemson. I mean, but yeah. I I am saying I am being serious when I say the game that interests me the most is Auburn. Central I think Florida. that's going to be a very I'm I'm interested by that game too. I just don't think uh, any kind of national champion contender is going to come out of it. Guys, speaking of football, we have a phone call from Todd in St. Louis talking football. Todd, welcome to the show. Hey guys, big fans, been listening for a long time, never called. Uh... Um, I actually played in the NFL for 14 years. My longest stint was uh, in Minnesota. And uh, which 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 era in Minnesota, Todd? I was there '94 to 2000, so uh, um, had a couple years at left tackle. I, I was last name Stussy, uh, but anyways, I was. Uh, you guys were uh, you were competitive in the, some playoff runs there in the mid '90s, didn't you? Yeah, no, I, we went uh, under Dennis Green when I was there. We went uh, six. Uh, runs at the playoffs in seven years, and weren't you fifteen? Uh, weren't you guys fifteen and one in nineteen ninety eight? Yep, uh, I when I played in uh, in St. Louis, this is the last team I played for. I I used to always rub in Isaac Bruce's face that uh, the greatest show on turf. Uh, I think got within thirty points of our ninety eight <laughs> total, so it wasn't very great. Oh, that's uh, great. That's great, Ted. Anyways, I was hearing you guys talk about the. Uh, kind of the end of uh tale about the pitcher and his yeah. basically tell that they uh, figured you, out in the world series. you darvish right yes yeah no i uh so anyways quick story uh in 2000 my last year in uh minnesota jeff george was our or i'm sorry 99 99 uh jeff george was our quarterback uh previously in oakland and we were playing in arrowhead and i'd gone against Derek thomas a few times before and well, he's a challenge. I mean, I, I always felt like I did pretty well against him. And anyways, we're in Arrowhead, and I never played there before, uh, so I knew that the noise was going to be a little bit of a factor. But on my kick slide, I would expect to usually find Derek somewhere just about, I mean, 90 degrees from my de- uh, dead center. Yep. And when I turn my head around, 
and he was easily 15, 20 degrees past that. Oh, wow. And couldn't figure it out until afterwards. And my agent called me, who happens to be also Jeff George's agent, who happens to be Derek Thomas's agent. And <laughs> he's telling me, like, no, what? don't worry about it. Hey, you know, Derek's really good. And, oh, by the way, Derek's known for a long time since the Oakland days when Jeff George was there that Jeff's got to tell. And oh my. basically went under center when he said the last hut, when whenever the hut that was going to be uh, on the snap count, he would open up his hands at the same time he would say it, which was a split second earlier wow. than the ball would actually start moving. So wow. So Derek cool. Was getting that, that <laughs> extra step on me every time, which... Two and a half sacks later, it was a it was a bad day. That's brutal. I mean, not only is it Derek Thomas, but Derek Thomas with the snap count. That's awful. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. Uh, I mean, I even my best day in uh, like at the combine. I think I ran. Well, I didn't run the combine my senior day. I ran a five zero. Derek runs like a four four. Right. On his best day, he's going forward. I'm going backwards. Right. And oh, by the way, he knows the snap count. <laughs> that is brutal. That is brutal. Well, Todd, thanks for letting us know, man, and thanks for listening. Please, That's so please, cool. Yeah, That's give like, us a ring back again. No yeah. need to wait another four years before you give us a call back. Oh, absolutely. Take care, guys. All right, that was yeah. Todd Stacey calling Todd in from St. Louis. I remember Todd extremely well from the NFL. He had a very long, successful career in the yeah. NFL. and At a uh, critical position. And at a very critical position. And that's a great... That, no, see, it's, this is tells, what, I guess, just sort of... I, I mean, I would love a person to just write a book on that. Yeah, right. Across sports. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. notice also what he said was, you know, even that instantaneous... I mean, in some sense, he's doing the calculation. Notice how he translated the tell into basically an angle, yeah, which yeah. means that extra fraction of a second... And instead of him being here, he was already 15 <laughs> degrees farther, which means right. he has no leverage anymore. Right. And so yeah. I love the way he made that translation yeah. between, let's call it, two-tenths of a second and 15-degree angle. Yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I would not have even thought to think about tells yeah. uh, with quarterbacks. Yeah, and in fact, back to the story with Darvish, I mean, I wouldn't know that tells were that, a big, that big a deal in the world. I mean, they basically pushed the World Series. It swung the World Series, a tell. Yeah. That's just remarkable. It also tells you something about how find the the edges for a for a pitcher at that level at performance against you know you're the best in the world at this thing but you're playing against the best in the well, world at well, and, and it must be such a i mean i mean obviously being a major league pitcher is an incredibly hard endeavor anyway but you know you know we've had rick peterson tell us many many times about the psycho how difficult the psychology of a pitcher is you got to sort of forget about your last bad inning you got to like well, keep yourself together and then you probably have your pitching coach come out like all every once in a while be like oh and by the way don't do anything predictable either <laughs> well, by the way well let's in make, addition to everything else you got going on in your head try not to do anything predictable well let's make the translation to another if you'd like sport we cover here on wharton moneyball which is poker right I'm sure what's happening now in poker right. is videotape analysis of players yeah. is being analyzed by other players sure. to see if there's a tell. Why for wouldn't sure. you use videotape analysis for that? I right. just it's less impressive with poker because that, all they have to focus on is not <laughs> having right. tells. That's have literally a... <laughs> their entire endeavor. They just have to sit there and not have tells. Well, I suppose they have to make their well, they have to make calculations. Right. I mean, those. But calculations guys, by that point are probably automatic, automatic. Those right? guys are automatic at that level. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right, let's circle back to the to the college football bowl season. This we're going to talk some about bowl confidence pools, mm -hmm. which is kind of a unique among the among the games people play with uh, sports. It's kind of unique, and it's one we love. One of my favorites. When you study judgment under uncertainty, when you study decision making, you you don't want 
you don't want to just look at whether people are right or not. You want to know wh- whether they're more often right when they're confident. Yep. And that's that because people express a degree of confidence and mostly it's meaningless. So if you can do that well, mm-hmm. if when you're confident, when you're more confident, you're more likely right. That's a sign of good judgment. And that's what you have to do in a bowl confidence pool. So for just a reminder of those who who don't do these things, there are 41 bowl games this year, at least in the most contests there are 41 bowl games. All you do is pick the winner. You don't pick against the line. You just pick the winner straight up. But then you rank the pool, rank the games one to 41. 41 for the game you're most confident in getting the winner right. One for the game you're least confident in predicting the winner right. And then for any game you call right, you get mm-hmm. that number of yep. points. So it's, first of all, it's one of my favorite, I'll call it, and I'm, I meant this intentionally, it's one of my favorite statistical designs of any kind of tournament that's run. And then you have to start thinking about strategy. If your goal is to win, how do you decide? I mean, yeah. is the... Is the Right thing to do, Cade would know this, well, he studies this, is the right thing to do to be truth-telling and to actually put your rank order in the degree that you believe. Or do you or, want to try and pick a couple kind of quote-unquote upsets to exactly. try and differentiate? I mean, it's it's, it's kind of like the NCAA t- basketball tournament, right? I mean, in, in this sense, right? You want to get everything correct, but you know that you want to differentiate yourself from the field in some way, so you have to pick a couple upsets, but it, the key is picking the upsets that you actually get. So but one, know, thing, one, one way upsets. in which I think it's different is that in the, in, the, in the NCAA pool, in the basketball pool, the seeds are so obvious, and people don't follow it very closely, and so it's real easy to just kind of go with seeds. In the bowl, you would, think, you would think that people just went with the lines, but I don't. My sense is that people don't just go with the lines, and so I think the the heuristic that is so obvious in basketball NCAA pools isn't as, as available. And and what that what that means here is that you don't have to be. In my in my opinion, you don't have to be as strategic. But what there's would, not as much there's not as much you know grouping around a common bracket. But what would cause somebody, let's say, using the Massey Peabody or the doesn't matter or the Vegas betting line? What would cause you? Let's say you were going to do it, Kate. You were going to fill this out. What would cause you, if anything, to deviate from the Massey Peabody line? Just rank order them in terms of the difference, and that's your confidence. What okay, would so make you is, deviate from that? This is exactly what the, this is a conversation we want to have, and I can tell you the, 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 the kind of reason I would, well, one, I'm not going to deviate, probably. But if I were to deviate, I would deviate because of some expert opinion, which is one of the reasons we brought in a guest this morning. So I want to welcome to the show Ty Hildebrandt. Ty just walked in the door. Good morning, Hello, Ty. good morning. So Ty got caught up and sounds like awful I-76 I'm, I'm going to need the bright statistical minds at this table to run some calculations, some probability on how often it occurs that uh, the drive from Allentown to Philly is two hours and ten minutes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's awful. And unfortunately, I think it's probably relatively often. Yeah, I mean, that, that for me now, it's higher like, than it used to be. Yeah. But uh, I am here. Thank you for the invite down. You know, it's a pleasure. I apologize for being a few no, minutes no, late. We're, 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 I think we're going to have it for a little while. We're, we'll take any of Ty Hildebrandt we can get. <laughs> Ty, Ty is a co-host of The Solid Verbal, which is one of the great college football podcasts out there. They've been doing it for about ten years now. They've built up a huge following. And they're great fun to listen to. You can catch him and his partner, Dan Rubenstein, a couple times a week during the college football season. Again, the solid verbal. Ty's been with us before. He's Eastern PA guy. He's up in, up in Allentown, just supposed to be about an hour north of here, two hours this morning. But Ty, Ty we've had Ty preseason. We've had him postseason. And we thought it'd be fun to talk through, you know, get a little bit of a catch up on college football, but also talk through the bowl confidence pool. Solid verbal runs a great bowl confidence pool. 
And so he's a natural candidate to, to bring in here and talk about that. So glad to have you, Ty. Glad to have you. We'll do, you know, we've only got a, a 10 minutes or so this segment. We'll pick it up again in the last half hour if, you, if we're able to keep you around. We'll sure. talk more college football then. But let's, let's, let's check in with you first just on the college football landscape. So you are a big Notre Dame guy, and you're also a big Penn State guy. And, and you also have a little bit of Texas love, which endears you to me. Um, and I'm, <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. A, a little bit. A little bit. bit. Um, well, we need all we can get these days, so we appreciate it. But, how, you know, Penn State, I guess, is the, is the more interesting story. Right now, I'm curious your thoughts on Notre Dame, but Penn State has finally become a team that I like to pull for, not mostly because of their, their offense and how innovative they have been. Uh, Saquon Barkley, of course, is a delight. They lost their offensive coordinator. To, he's taken the head job down at Mississippi State. He was such a risky, innovative hire. Um, when they pulled him out of Fordham, he was head coach at Fordham. They elevated that guy to offensive coordinator. Totally renovated what they had going on. He's it seems like he's been phenomenal. How do you feel about the loss there, and how do you feel like it's going to be recovering from that? I, it's a huge loss. I mean, part of the reason why everyone talked about James Franklin. How did he win so many games at Vanderbilt in the SEC? Vanderbilt's obviously not a traditional power in the SEC by any stretch. He won because he was really good at hiring solid coordinators, and he brought most of that leadership with him to State College. Now, it didn't work out, but he had the wherewithal um, to go out and, and try to reinvent things on both sides of the football. And particularly on offense with Joe Moorhead, he was able to do that. You go back to the Minnesota game from a year ago when they started to get Trace McSorley a little bit more on the run, out of the pocket, use his legs more to their advantage. Mm-hmm. That's when things really started to trend upwards for Penn State as an offensive unit. Mm-hmm. To lose him now to Mississippi State, I think is a pretty big blow. And I'm curious to see the direction in which this Penn State offense goes moving forward. Not only is he gone, but they're going to lose Saquon Barkley in all likelihood to the NFL, um, who was a big part of that offense. So how they utilize Trace McSorley now in a system without Joe Moorhead, how that system looks without Joe Moorhead, quite honestly, is a big unknown. I don't know if anybody knows. You would hope, if you're a Penn State fan that they would retain some semblance of what they've done yeah. over the last two seasons. And I, I would think, with the personnel groupings they have, that they would try to do that. But, you know, you lose the head guy like yeah. Joe Moorhead like that, and, and there is a degree of uncertainty. Ty, this is Eric Bradley. I just wanted to ask you, um, I assume, I haven't heard about this, I assume he's not coaching as well in the bowl game. No, and what's interesting about that sort of, and we I caught the tail end of your discussion here about some extra factors that might cause someone to deviate from the Massey Peabody, any other ranking system. Sonny Dykes is taking over at SMU for the bowl game. How often do we see that in college football? That, to me, even though SMU's a favorite by most Vegas indicators, there is no way on God's green earth I would pick SMU because they've got a brand new coach called off the bench in game 13. So, no, I, I mean, I guess... Now, was Dykes coordinator before? He was in the organization, or was he not even at SMU? No. Wow. Wow. No. I mean, which is, which is truly a unique situation yeah, in college yeah, football. Yeah. So, no, Moorhead's not going to be there for the bowl game. We'll see how that factors in. Um, most of the personnel is still there. I would expect it would be much of the same in their so, bowl game. Well, that's By what the way, you're yeah. referring to there being a longer-term effect for Penn State, not necessarily in the game where there have been all these assistant offensive coaches right, who right. can essentially implement this system for one game. Exactly. I think, and you see that often in bowl games where coaches leave. Uh, you know, there is a retention period where they can keep it going for the most part 
Um, it's the just when, Dykes the, when, thing when the is actual player yeah. personnel changes over, that's when you know his loss exactly. will probably be the most so, so magnified. So this is one of the most exciting. I mean, we, Eric was just talking about how many great games there are this bowl season, and the Penn State Washington is one that I I would say it's a top three or four game because Penn State's been so fun to to watch. And Washington has this underappreciated defense, and so you've got one of the country's best offenses against one of the best countries. And my Boise defenses. State ex coach there. <laughs> that's right. That's why you like them. Um, so we're, we're down to just a minute or so, but in terms of bowl confidence pools, you got points one to forty-one yeah. on that game. It's your team. What do you, how, what do you assign to Penn State, Washington? Who do you think is going to win, and what I, points do you assign to? Them? I like Penn State, and again, we're going scale one to forty-one, yep. including the celebration bowl on December sixteenth, right. at least right. in our pool. Um, I and I could talk a little bit about my model. Uh, I've only got nine points in that game. Yeah, it, it, but you like Penn State. I do like Penn State. You do like Penn State. So the so the line there is. Two. It's only two points. So the market says it's going to be tight. We think that we, we, we are with you on that. We think it's one of the five or six tightest games probably, but it's going to be a lot of fun. That's a December 30 game. So we have we have a lot more college football to talk about. We have a lot more college football bowls to talk about. We're going to hold off now. We're going to pay a few bills. We're going to pick up a guest in the next half hour. And in the last half hour, we'll come back around. We'll talk a little pro football, but we'll also talk a little bit more college football. Ty Hildebrandt, delighted to have you. Looking forward to talking with you more for the rest of the show. That's been half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my friends and colleagues, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We had a phone call from a 14-year NFL veteran last half hour. That was fun. Todd Stucey, yep. Todd Stucey talking about talking about Jeff George, his quarterback, giving up his uh, giving tipping his tipping yeah. his, tipping the snap count to Derek Thomas, no less. Can you imagine being the left tackle oh, going against Derek I mean, Thomas just not in Arrowhead, in Arrowhead, and and he knows Jeff George's snap count? That's amazing. Uh, you can also email us businessradio at siriusxm.com, businessradio at siriusxm.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at wmoneyball. We, for the next half hour, have two things going on. We have a, an in-studio guest, a guest co-host, you could call him. Ty Hildebrand is here. Ty? Hello. Delighted to have you. Ty is the co-host of the very popular college football podcast, Solid Verbal. You can follow Ty on Twitter. I believe it's at Ty Hildebrand. Is it that, that straightforward? Yep. Yep. And you can also follow the, the podcast. His partner, Dan Rubenstein, is the, the co-creator of Solid Verbal, but they have a they have a Twitter feed at Solid Verbal, I believe. Is that right? That yep. is correct. Yep. In this half hour, we are delighted to welcome back to the show the founder of Pro Football Focus, the founder and COO of Pro Football Focus, Neil Hornsby. Neil, welcome back. Hi, guys. How you doing? We're doing great, Neil. Where are you calling in from this morning? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Our, uh, the PSS headquarters in Cincinnati. That, that's right. Well, listen, man, uh, delighted to have you. Um, we want to hear about what's going on with Pro Football Focus these days. We probably need to tell our listeners a little bit about what Pro Football Focus is if they don't know, because it's kind of, from what I can tell, gradually taking over the NFL and got eyes on college football as well, in in a good way. 
I'd like to think in a good way. Uh, yes, we collect um, more data on football than anybody else on the planet. So we collect everything you could possibly want to know uh, about the NFL, hopefully about college, and we've just started um, on high school football as well. We oh did my a little 200-game pilot in the Cincinnati area that went very well um, this season. Um, we have 30 of the 32 NFL teams as clients. We have 25 of the NCAA teams as clients. Um, and that number's growing always. <laughs> so, yeah, we provide them with data. We also provide consumers with data. We provide the networks with data. The, 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 the basic question or the basic thing that we will say is ask us any question about football. And we'll uh, wow. we'll do our best to answer it. So you started out. I, I think of you as having started out charting plays, essentially, where you could tell, you could grade a player on a play. Every a, player on a play. Every player on every play. So yeah. at a granularity that people just didn't have before. At least they didn't have it unless they had their scouts in a room watching videotape. That's that's correct. So what we do, for example, is let's assume we have an inside zone run. And we have a, a document that all of our guys go to that says this is what we would expect from the center on an inside zone run. This is slightly better than what we would expect. This is a lot better than we would expect, slightly less. And, so, and everybody grades to that standard. Okay. Um, and just to give you an indication, I mean, there's a, we had Paul Alexander, who's the uh, offensive line coach for the Bengals last year, um, did 600 uh, uh, reviewed 600 players during the season, and he disagreed with 12. And oh, wow. his own players, his own call. So that's a level of the accuracy that we get to. Right. It's not just one guy reviewing it, it's multiple guys. So, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow. I, I love what you're saying here, and I just have a specific question. I love your choice of saying, you know what, we're not going to try to grade this on some 1 to 10 scale where there's low reliability in some sense. Is it above what you'd expect? Is it what you'd expect and lower? Could you talk about how you guys kind of trade off? Like, it would be wonderful to have a 0 to a million scale on every play, but the reality is you probably only have the ability to say, was it better, same, or worse? How do you guys think about that trade off when you're collecting data of this type? It's, it's one of those things, it, 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 truthfully, we, when we set out to do this, it was just a hobby. And this was just me, who's the least mathematical person on the planet, who just said, you know what, that feels like it's about right to us. And as it's happened, it's, it's been really interesting. We just published our uh, first research journal. The grades have stood the test of time far better. Call it a happy accident. Call it a happy accident. Because there was no... There was genuinely no major thought put into the grading system other than exactly what you say when we started doing it 10 years ago. So, Neil, it's a little surprising to hear a guy who, with your accent taking over American football. And so what, what accident created this whole thing to begin with? I, I, I wouldn't want to say taking over. I have a deep passion for football. I have. It's always been my favorite sport. Um, I enjoyed it in the UK and uh, I built a business. Well, I didn't build a business. I built a hobby. I, I essentially started something. It was very much a hobby. It was never intended to make money. It was just a deep passion. And surprisingly, what we found was when we started to get phone calls from NFL teams, 
when we started publishing the data on the internet, something that I just expected that they would have, they didn't have. And that surprised me, mm-hmm. and I realized there was then more of an opportunity. But even two, three years after that, this is how stupid I am, I still didn't realize there was an opportunity. Um, and it wasn't until 2012 that I went to my wife and said, look, I'd like to give this football stuff a go full time. But even then, it really wasn't to do any more than just spend hopefully the rest of my career doing something and I enjoyed rather than something I felt I had to do. I was a business consultant back in the UK. Uh-huh. So we gave it a shot. Uh, two years later, I got a call from Chris Collinsworth. It was very interesting in what we were doing. He tells the story far better than me. But the long and the short of it was Chris decided to become the majority shareholder in the company. Uh, it brought me and my family to Cincinnati as a result. And we built the business up from there. We weren't doing, when Chris came along, we weren't doing any college football at all. We now do 870 FBS games a year. Wow. Um, and we had 13 NFL teams. Mm-hmm. So we've built significantly from there, you know, due to Chris and his passion for what we're doing as well. How did how did Collinsworth find out about you guys? Just on just on the internet, he was uh, browsing through. He'd been asked to do a post game. So after Sunday night football, he'd been asked to do a, a roundup type show, and he was saying, "Well, well, I could." I can do, I can bullshit with the best, <laughs> but you know, how can I do all this without actually having seen all the games? You wow. Know? Okay. So he was um, looking for a way to get, as Chris is always doing. It's, it's, it, it, the thing with Chris is he's always trying to get better, mm-hmm. and that was really what it was about. He was trying to do it the right way. If he was going to do something as a show, he wanted it to be accurate, and he was looking for people who were. You know, grading games that that day and could give you accurate information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Neil Hornsby. Neil is the founder and COO of Pro Football Focus. Pro Football Focus provides data of all kinds to both NFL teams and college teams. They're they're probably best known for charting data, telling teams what happened at each play, especially grades for each player for every play of the game. Incredibly valuable. They have thirty of the thirty-two teams. You hear about them as you talk to teams around the league. As you now these days, as you talk to college colleges, you hear. They're, the value they place on the product that Neil and the guys in Pro Football Focus are kicking out there. So, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow again. Since we're a business school, you know, we're, we're broadcasting here from the Wharton School. Um, do you guys think about vertical integration? What I mean by that is, do you guys have an analytics team? And do you guys think about not just being providers of data, but since you know the data better than anybody, does it make sense to build up a team of analytics people, interpreters, yeah. who yeah. can now provide not just data, but let's call them analytics or consulting services? Yes, absolutely. And as I, I was just mentioning, we published our first research and development journal. We've got a, a, a team of six uh, headed up by uh, Nathan Yankee, but Eric Eager and George Shahuri have also been major players in that. Bill Douglas as well uh, also participated in our journal. Um, so the, the, we've got a team of six guys. We are, are doing more and more. So what we did was we we published this journal. And by the way, if anybody's interested in getting their hands on this journal, if anybody wants to just tweet me their email address at uh, pff underscore mail, I'll happily send them a PDF copy of what we've done. 
Um, but this is something we're going to do far more frequently. We send it to all our NFL team customers. We got a tremendous response from them. Um, and we're going to be, we scheduled to do at least two more um, in the coming months. So it's something that we are doing. Um, one of the things, just to go back a little bit, and uh, I apologize for maybe going off tangentially, but I think it's important to this. When we first gave the data to the NFL teams, we, we effectively just threw it over the fence because <laughs> we were very humble guys and we threw it over the fence and said, there's the data, but please, sir, please use it. <laughs> and we came back the next year and we asked how it had went, you know, fully expecting them to say, yeah, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. And right. This wasn't everybody, but it was, a, it was a large proportion. And people said, well, we didn't really use it. We didn't really get it and at that stage we realized that we needed to provide tools and techniques to turn that data into information right for some of our team customers now some of our team customers every nfl team and every college team is different they deal with it in different ways some people are very very good at sucking that data into their systems and manipulating and dealing with it themselves turning it into information themselves but are not in significant proportion need our help and our tools to be able to do that and mm -hmm. that was one of the things that we realized very quickly was we couldn't just be data providers we needed to turn that data into information right so to your point yes and after providing then tools the next thing is to provide analytics and research journals and you know ask people to think about things in a slightly different way. Neil, can you give us an example of a, of a tool, a concrete example of a tool you gave them to help better understand or translate or use the data you're providing? Yeah, so what we did, we have a tool that we built relatively early on. We're just in the process of rebuilding. In fact, we're in the process of rebuilding all our tools. Um, but uh, we have a tool called the PAT, which is the Play Analysis Tool, and it allows you to select any offense in the NFL, then to be able to um, filter down on anything you want, what personnel package, formation, uh, what, what, how um, down distance, et cetera, things of that sort of ilk, third downs. And then what it does is it actually draws the diagrams of all of those players. So what the, what the teams can do, what our team customers can do, is they can use that to either analyze games or build scout cards uh, for their upcoming opponents, etc. Hi, Neil. This is Ty Hildebrandt from The Solid Verbal. One thing that I've come to appreciate in the fine work that you guys do is it's not just the charting of plays. It's the variety of individual attributes that you're also able to chart. One thing that's near and dear to my heart is Saquon Barkley, as a Penn State grad, I know he's very high on your elusiveness ratings. It seems like such yeah. a, a random statistic, a random attribute to somehow be able to chart. How do you come up with this stuff? How do you figure out exactly what it is your customers, both in the league and outside the league, are interested in knowing more about? It, it's the usual thing with many businesses, and I hear this time and time again, which is, We'll, we'll obviously go to our customers, but build it for you. I have always said, build it for you. I, I, would, I would always say that the main reason that this business has been successful is that I didn't build it to make money. Mm. And it was never that. It was <laughs> always a passion. It was always about building it the way I wanted it. 
So we weren't trying to cut corners. We weren't trying to do strange things. We were just building it for us. We were building the things that really interested us as a group. And I'm just talking to one of the guys who's now building our new tool, PSF Ultimate, which is we, we couch it as an... We demonstrated it at the Combine next year and we'll be taking it back to our customers at the Combine this year and showing them exactly what it can do. But it was talked about as we want to be able to answer any football question and then articulate that answer in whatever format you want. Do you want to watch a video? Do you want to see a chart? Whatever you want to do. Do you want to see it um, contextualized as NGS data, i.e. the shoulder pad data that the the NFL is coming up with? Whatever you want. And we've always, you know, uh, Rick Drummond, uh, my, uh, my lead product manager on that, you know, he's always coming up with new things, which is, all right, what do you think about this? And I said, that's just a great idea. What's the worst thing that can happen if you throw in a data point? Somebody doesn't use it. <laughs> right. You, know, you don't. You don't get penalized for putting in extra things. That's. It's fascinating to to hear you speak about the passion behind these ideas that translate so well into the marketplace. It's not marketplace driven necessarily. It's very entrepreneurial the way you talk about it. I'm sure Ty appreciates it. Ty created a very successful college football podcast. And and when they began, I'm sure they were just doing it the way they wanted to do it. And they put a front end on it because they want to put a front end they like. They want to talk about the things that they want to talk about. And it turns out that the market was there for it. Um, yeah. This, this is Sorry, a, I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So I have actually kind of a question about, uh, you know, when you, when you watch NFL broadcasts, for example, mm-hmm. and you, you have, say, a sportscaster that's less analytics data savvy, is there some is is there kind of a common thing that what they say that just makes you pull your hair out that like you know just goes against the data to such an extent kind of a, you know um, the football equivalent of, of of Joe Morgan or something like that I think is what I'm looking for. No, it's got so much better recently. Um, I th- there was a time when that was the case. You know, probably about five years ago. I think the quality of um, commentary on football games now is really high class in general terms. I think they've learned if they don't know something, not to bullshit. That That's the big thing. Wow. Rather than making things up, I think they just don't say something anymore. I think in the past, they would do it, but I just find the quality. John Gruden being a classic counterexample to everything you're saying <laughs> yeah. right now, but yes, we we, we mostly yeah, agree with you. But Shane's, Shane's writing notes about John Gruden not quite following into the same category. Well, well, you see, John does it, John is just maybe overly positive. You know, the, the the thing, the knock on John is he's overly positive about things. But John will come up with some fantastic. I can remember two years ago there was a piece on the Cincinnati Bengals. And it's something that we know very well and we've been articulating very well, which is nobody likes to have a go at the star. So nobody likes to have a go at A.J. Green and everybody loves to have a go at Andy Dalton. So everything's Andy's fault. Yeah. And for a number of years, you know, for a number of years, we said, well, you know, so A.J. runs a number of really routes at times, you know. He go, he, he breaks left when he should break right. He doesn't hit his marks all the time. Yep. And John did a really excellent piece that articulated that. I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, John's an excellent football coach. And generally, 
he's he's very very good at doing what he does. I, you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not going to criticize. Look, it, and criticize it, John Gruden. It reminds me of the thing between you know the classic Moneyball thing between scouts and analysts, and in the in the movie. They're kind of caricatured, and you can find things about scouts, traditional scouts, to criticize. But ultimately, analysts can learn from scouts. And even the guys who say many many things you disagree with are going to say some things that are outside your model. And so you better be listening to the John Grudens of the world. He's got a lifetime experience in football at the highest levels. He's going to say some things that aren't in your model and that you need to think about getting into your model. We're talking to Absolutely. We're talking to Neil Hornsby. Couldn't agree more. Neil, agreeing there in Cincinnati, is the COO of Pro Football Focus. He's also the founder and creator of Pro Football Focus. They provide data to 30 of the 32 NFL teams, which should catch your attention, and now 25 NCAA teams. They're best known for charting plays at a, at a level of detail that's very helpful to organizations, but they're pushing beyond that into analytics and and more sophisticated packages. So, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow again. I was just going to ask you, do you see a time where Pro Football Focus is, or maybe you're doing this already, is able to provide in-game real-time analysis? And so, um, not retrospectively, but if you know, if you had enough graders working in real-time, do you think that day will come, or maybe technology-enabled way to do it? Uh, we do do that now. I'll give you an example. Um, Chris, uh, on his broadcast, will always get um, either a text or a phone call from one of our guys at halftime, the guys who are um, doing the game. We'll probably have about 15 people uh, looking at that game um, uh, over the course of the the first half and then the second half. Um, And he will get a call and we'll bring him up to speed with some of the things that have been happening. You know, perhaps you missed this. The left guard is really struggling against this defensive tackle, or you didn't, you know, or this is happening and you didn't mention it. And a lot of the time he's aware of it, but it's just like a second look. And some of the time we're really able to help him, you know, get to grips with, you know, perhaps some of the things for the second half of the broadcast. That, that's amazing, Neil. Just, just remarkable that you've you're providing this tool to him. He's, it's the highest profile game of the week. And you're giving him real-time analysis that just trumps anything anybody, any other announcer at any other game has ever had at his disposal. That's a, that's amazing. Yeah. Can we talk about? And we're starting to do that for the for the uh, crews as well. We work with some of the other um, teams as well, and we're starting yeah. to get more into doing that. So we do every we do every NFL game live. We do the big college games live generally. Um, certainly all of the uh, college football playoffs will be done live. Um, and then but clearly that's at only a certain degree of accuracy, and we understand that yeah. because you, ca- you can't really do the full grading until you get the all 22. But what we're doing is we say taking it, it's 80% accurate and everything needs to be considered in that realm, 80 to 85%. Well, consider- and then we take it up to 95 to 100 you know, once you get the all 22. Well, consider what it is if you don't have pro football focus. If you're just watching the game or you're an announcer and you can yeah. fo- you can focus on two players a play. I mean, it's just so much better than what you can do by yourself. Neil, as a way of making a little more concrete some of the offerings you have, I'm sure I'm sure Collinsworth uses these data to prepare for Monday night games. Do you, are you oh, familiar? Absolutely. Are you? Can you give us an example of something he's looking for? as he scouts the teams that he's going to be talking about on Monday night using the pro football focus data. Okay. 
So, yeah, what Chris does is there's two real paths to this. So the first thing is one of our guys has broken down every single um, player and every single highlight reel for the for the season. So any, any graded player whatsoever is on what we call our key players. So if he goes in and he's got, I don't know, Pittsburgh and he wants to focus on Alejandro Villanueva, the left tackle, and he wants to see all of the players that Alan, uh, that Villanueva made a good block on or had a negative or gave up a sack, a hit or a pressure, that's all there for him. So all he has to do is go in and say, Pittsburgh, Villanueva, and then he sits there and he watches the highlight tape of all of Villanueva. And in half an hour, he's got that guy. And then he's on to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. And sometimes, obviously, with a team like Pittsburgh, it's very popular and he'll probably see two or three times during the season. He's just looking at the games he hasn't seen. Right. So he will do that. The other thing that we do is we produce for him and a number of other uh, the TV companies um, – it's about a 30-page breakdown um, of each team it, it, in really real detail, but <clears throat> highlights. So we get our analysts going through and producing graphics, etc., that make certain points. Uh, Alex Smith, for example, something like Alex Smith had the lowest depth of target eight times out of the last nine years. Something, you know, just to make right. the point, right. and there'll be a nice graphic on there that'll put that there. The key points about the quarterbacks, the players, who's a, a new rookie that's coming through. So, for example, when he was dealing with Marshawn Lattimore, we were giving him a ton of information on who Marshawn Lattimore had gone up against, who he'd, who he'd done very well against virtually everybody, and who he'd struggled against, etc. So that they also, and the whole production team get that as well. Well, Neil, this is Eric Brother again. That's exactly the point. I, thank you for the softball, because it leads me to my next point. I, until you just mentioned that, I had never thought about what Pro Football Focus is doing. Let's assume we know it's valuable to the GM, it's valuable to the coach, but you're suggesting the announcer, the producers of the show, the cameramen and women, all of these people should actually know this because they'll know where to focus the camera, what to say in the announcer's ear, what to focus on during the game. So could you talk about how the reception has been for your kind of data, not just, let's call it, the top end or by the coaches, but by, in some sense, the whole staff that's trying to create a better analytical experience uh, for the fan? Yeah, I. that's exactly right. So, I mean... the Fred Gadelli is the gold standard producer in football. He obviously produces Sunday Night Football, who produced the Super Bowl this year. And Fred has always been looking at ways to get better. He's just a, he is a, a hugely talented, focused individual, and he will do whatever he takes. So we went up to the Hall of Fame game, sat down with them. We've been working with the, the production team for many years, but... So just to give you an example, we go up to the Hall of Fame game that they're producing, we sit down with Fred and his production team, and we ask them what went well last year, what didn't go so well, what do you want differently? So they're asking for, well, tell us in this particular in this particular situation, tell us what the key packages are, tell us what to look out for, tell us exactly. So that's all there in the packages that they get on a weekly basis. They're also interested in 
time on the clock left, the amount of no huddle that people play, you know, are they going to be able to move from a, um, a, a guy and show something else in between or not, depending upon how much time's left on the clock? So Fred set the standard, and, uh, and as usual, a lot of people uh, are also um, following that now. And we've been involved in a lot more broadcasts. I saw we were quoted on uh, a couple of CBS broadcasts. You know, there was Pro Football Focus. That's great. On uh, a couple of the CBS broadcasts as well. Neil, that's just um, great for the level of conversation in, uh, about yeah. football, that, that people have that to, to work with now. People are recognizing it as a, as a mm-hmm. credible source of information. And increasingly, the announcers who don't rely on that kind of information are at a disadvantage. And I think they're, they're beginning to realize it's at a disadvantage. One last question for you. It's kind of a sla- comment slash question. We're, we're all big fans of Steve Palazzolo around here. So he's he's been on our show a couple of times. We had him live down at the Super Bowl last year. Then he's been on the on the phone with us. Ty Hillebrand walks in here, guest co-hosting this morning, and he loves Steve. So big Steve yeah. guy right here, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one great hire, well done. And two, you're hiring a lot of people. Any tips on how you build teams? You're doing something right down there. What have you learned about building a team? Well, it's it's easy. The way I always look at it is, um, it's easy in this business because. I always say people do four things in life. They sleep, they do family Easy, PG-13 show, PG-13 show. They do a job and they do a hobby. And for our guys, their hobby is their job. So I'm getting double double the production out of most people because when the guys go home, when Steve goes home, you know, from the office, he's going to be watching more football because that's his hobby. You know, our guys will generally work six, seven days a week, particularly during the season, because they love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really easy to build a business and to build teams when you've got incredibly passionate, talented people. And Steve's an incredible talent. He has the ability to be able to talk cogently, about, far more cogently than I can about football, He's got that ability to be able to get into the detail. He loves quarterback play. He's been he was a contributor to our analytics journal as well. He's got a lot of great ideas about additional data that we should be collecting that we've just started collecting that will help us, you know, be able to say who's the best quarterback on third read, who's the quarter the best quarterback on second read, things of that sort of nature. You know, things that people have never done before. Mm-hmm. So it's to, to answer the question again, it's relatively straightforward to get talented people when you've got a sexy business for them to walk into, like football. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, p- people find different kinds of businesses sexy. So you're generally saying finding someone who's passionate about the work, so that it's not just something they do nine to five, but something they're thinking about when you walk out out, out, the, out the door, because you continue to get value out of them that way. Good, good yeah, advice, the, Neil. Appreciate yeah, the, the other thing I would say is, and this is slightly more businessy than football related. I think there's two sorts of people generally that I found in my business career. There's people who want to do the job to be, to do the job the best that they possibly can. Doesn't matter what they do, they don't care about fame and fortune or anything that comes with it. They just want to do it to the best of their ability. That gives them satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And there's another sort of people that want to do the job because they want the status. Mm-hmm. They want the associated money mm-hmm. that comes with it. I've had a lot more success with the 
with the former than I have with the latter. Right, right, right. Well, listen, uh, we appreciate your taking the time. We love seeing the success that you've had, and we wish you many, many more going forward. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. That was Neil Hornsby, CEO of Pro Football Focus, also the founder of Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Neil. Again, Neil Hornsby. That's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Sound engineer Danielle Bruno bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour as she usually does. You can join us this half hour, 1844 Wharton. That's 1844 942 7866. You can also email us, business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can, you can add us. You can tweet at us. We've got Twitter account at WMoneyBall. You want to reach us that way. We are just off the phone with Neil Hornsby. Neil is the creator of a little organization in Cincinnati called Pro Football Focus that provides data to the entire NFL. Coaches, media outlets. Now he's providing data to college football. Interesting evolution in the world of football analytics. Before that, we had the guest Another guest, Ty Hildebrandt, was was in here. And Ty's still here. Delightfully, Ty is in studio being from Allentown, Pennsylvania. It's not too bad, at least most mornings. It's not too bad to get down here. But Ty's kind of guest hosting with us for the rest of the show. And because we have him, we want to pick up the college football conversation again. We talked a little bit about Bulls an hour ago or half hour ago, 45 minutes ago. But we've got a lot more Bulls to talk about. And along the way, maybe we can talk about some of the other happenings in college football. Do I get um, to ask my question of Ty, which is when UCF beats Auburn, that UCF <laughs> should have a claim to the national championship. They'll be undefeated. They will have beaten the team that beat Alabama and Georgia. Um, why can't you, I don't mean in the BCS. I know that's gone. They're not in the playoffs, but like in the AP or whatever, why is there not a legitimate claim if they were to beat Auburn, that they should be sharing at least part of the people's national championship or whatever you want to call it. Unfortunately, the the cynical answer and the only answer to your question is that the entire construct around UCF's undefeated season is built in a manner to keep them out. So, yes, in a perfect world, and in an imperfect world, too, you could definitely make a case this is an undefeated team. Undefeated for a long time has been a gold standard for a team that— uh, could well compete with any other team and on the FBS you, level. You guys are killing me. You're Unfortunately, killing we just don't have that. No, here, it's not here. Here, the best we can do. I know Eric likes numbers. The best we can do is where would you put them, Eric Bradlow, on a on a power ranking in college football after if, they beat Auburn? I, they're not going to beat Auburn, but okay, even after they beat Auburn, they're, right now we have them. Massey Peabody has them twenty fourth in the country. If they were to play Alabama, our best prediction of what the line would be, the market line is twenty one points. Why are we wasting our time talking about UCF right now? Because all we can do is to say they will have beaten, I mean, they weren't a highlight team. I mean, Memphis, they did beat Memphis the last mm-hmm. game of the season. They were ranked number 20 at the time. I don't, I don't, can't exactly see where they are in the Mass EP, but maybe even below UCF. I don't, two slots below. Two UCF. slots below. Okay, so that's, you don't have that as a particularly impressive <laughs> win either. Yeah, you have to say, if you can't find them on the list, that's. What indicated. if they were to play the Toronto Argonauts, <laughs> Grey Cup champions of the Canadian football? I just want to say, for people that want to, would fo- they then be the people's champion? For people that want to follow us on at W Moneyball, champion. when UCF beats Auburn, I'm going to put up a BCS okay. trophy Eric, Eric, on the 
let's go. Uh, how much you want to go? It'll I'll, go in your I'll TV give, room. I'll give you the line. I'll give you the nine points. You name the stakes. And, UCF and we, versus we, 1999 we, Miami would be so interesting. <laughs> Battle right. of South Florida. Right. Equally relevant question. <laughs> Thank you, Ty. All right. So, Ty, I, you and I, I know, because you've already announced some of your picks. You're like eight bowl games into this in, on your podcast. So, happily, you and I have the same Massey Peabody and Solid Verbal. Have the, At least Ty Hillbrand has the same Number one pick in the bowl conference pool. What's that pick? FAU. FAU, baby. Home game, hopping aboard the Lane Kiffin train. Yeah. They, they are literally playing the bowl in their home stadium. Yeah, and they're not... literally playing a bowl game named after Tart Cherries, which is something <laughs> new in the college football postseason to have the Cherubundi Tart Cherries Bowl. Yeah. Uh, Boca Raton Bowl, I should say. And is that yeah. actually the number one in terms of, like, if I just went to the Vegas betting line, that's the one with the largest spread against Akron? I, I believe so. I, at last check, it's about 22 and a half. And, you know, a variety of factors, I would imagine, contribute to why they put it so high like that. But uh, it is a home game. Florida Atlantic has obviously played really well on offense, and they've come into their own now under Lane Kiffin and Kendall Bryles running the offense. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a huge surprise to me to see them out in front by that margin. Yeah, the line there is something like 22 points, yeah. which is um, pretty easily the the biggest spread of the games. Next highest, it looks like, is the, the Florida State. Florida Southern State's Mass about 15 and a half. Yeah. Well, that's a big... All right, so that's seven points. That's a big number to which it makes sense to put them as the most confident. I mean, Absolutely. Seven, it's a very large gap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ty, as you look around the rest of the bowl landscape, what, what games are you most excited about for any reason, either because you're a rooting interest or a close game or a game you think people misunderstand sure well i mean i'll I'll take the playoffs out of this discussion because those are those are sort of assumed all the time but usc against ohio state is going to be a great game you think in in the cotton bowl yeah i mean i don't know how and how close it ends up being but in terms of sheer star power on the field yeah there are a lot of interesting storylines what was sam darnold and yeah you know, what they're trying to build on offense at USC. And then on the flip side, the Ohio State controversy at the end of the year was particularly interesting to see that matchup between those two teams would be really cool. By controversy, you mean not making into the playoffs? Not making the playoffs, sure. Do you think that means they're going to have a little bit extra motivation? Well, I I think anytime you've got a senior quarterback like JT Barrett, who, let's be honest... Playing in his home state. Playing in his home state may not have a career in the NFL as a quarterback. Uh, Don't want to besmirch the name too much, but... Uh, I think that gives him a little bit extra juice. And then okay. on, the, on the Sam Darnold side... Yeah, tell me about Sam. Uh, Sam Darnold's really good when his first read is open as a quarterback. Is that the take on him? Okay. When his first read is open, he's outstanding. When you get him outside the pocket, when he has to improvise, he's very, very good. When the first read breaks down and they keep him in the pocket, things tend to go sideways for Sam Darnold. That's been huh. the read on him from a scouting perspective all year. Okay, um, so I would expect that's kind of the game plan. Jets you'll see. need a quarterback. Yeah, <laughs> sounds but perfect. You, you need a. <laughs> he would fit right in with that scouting. He would fit he? right in. Yeah. So, a lot of interesting factors at play there. Okay, so on that game, if you're talking bull confidence pool, we would suggest putting it pretty high. So the spread there, the market spread, is seven points. Massey Peabody likes it more like 12, so we even like it as a bet. But we're going to make that one of our top picks. We're going to make it about 38 points or no. Now, I know that gets against, goes against your heuristic. Ty's got this great heuristic he picked up somewhere. Tell us about your heuristic. The, for how to assign points. Great is extremely <laughs> well, uh, a, a liberal interpretation it's of what... It's efficient. Yeah, I mean, so generally what I do when I'm picking games in a bowl confidence pool is I'm going to take the games that are played earlier 
And I'm going to flip the script a little bit. So everybody knows about Georgia and Oklahoma. Those yeah. are the teams that you tend to put more points on because you're more comfortable with them if you're just picking at home. What I tend to do, and at least, again, my unofficial metric here, I tend to think you see greater mismatches earlier yeah. among some of those earlier bowl games. And so a game like Ohio State and USC, I've only got four points on that game. Mm-hmm. But a game earlier on, let's say like, I don't know, Troy and North Texas? Who knows a lot about Troy and North Texas besides people running the numbers, people keeping track of these teams week in and week out? Uh, I've got that game, 40 points in favor of Troy. Mm -hmm. So generally I'll favor teams that play earlier with the most confidence points, and I'm also going to subtract some level of confidence from teams that are losing a coach. Okay, so hold on. Before you go to the coach, at an advantage, you know, by Christmas whether you're doing well or not. Well, exactly right. Here's we just read a quick regression of the of the of the this is the this is the absolute yeah this is the the, the market spread the market spread is a function of what sequence the game is early games to late, and the average early in the bowl season is about seven points. And it drops to about four by the end. And so there's some wisdom there. It's not a huge drop, but it's a reliable drop. As you go through the bowl season, the average market line is dropping, and so your confidence should be dropping. Kate, Kate is slamming away on code over here, and I'm just <laughs> shooting from the hip. So if I can use that graph there you go. I as some, as some degree of proof, that'd be excellent. Okay, you were also talking about coaching changes, because this is the time of year that coaches are hopping from one place to another. And some bowl teams have coaches that weren't even in there during the season. So you're going to use that as another way. Because Eric asked before the show started, he said, why would you ever deviate from a system you believed in? Like a Massey Peabody system, why deviate? Well, there's some very true non-stationarity, even observable non-stationarity, whenever you have Chad Morris leaving SMU to go to Arkansas and they bring in Spike Dykes to take over his job. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, you can look around college football. Oregon is a team that I – sorry, Eric. I like Oregon a lot over Boise State, but Oregon lost its coach. It, it, Willie Taggart went to Florida State. Yeah. They've promoted from within, so there should be some degree of continuity. But if Oregon comes out of the gates and stumbles a little bit, a little bit more than you'd expect against Boise, I think that would sort of add in or that would make sense with what you're seeing going on around the program. Just okay. That continuity may not be there. It's going on around uh, college football and other places, too. Texas A&M, UCLA. You could point your hand at a number of different bowl teams that I think are going to be in that same category. Todd, when you look at this, do you think about the possibility that some players may announce between now and the game? I've been given advice not to play in the game. So, or do we know at this point? Some. So, yeah. I know some, but do we know if all like would it shock you? I'm making this up. No, if Glenn Sam Barkley. Darnold, or, or let's say Sam Darnold was now given the advice not to play in that game. So, is there any way that you think about that, or is that there's just kind of there's no way to know and to assign put, use that when assigning confidence? I, I mentioned UCLA. Let me use UCLA as a better example. Josh Rosen. Maybe. Josh Rosen's been nicked up all year. All right. He's supposedly healthy right now, but there's a pretty good case for Josh Rosen as being the number one quarterback off the board come NFL draft time. If Rosen comes down with like a spontaneous case of man flu, <laughs> I, that would not surprise me at all. I heard all. that's wrong, going, going Yeah, around. I mean, it's apparently yeah. stronger in men than women, but the point is we saw it a year ago with Christian McCaffrey, and there was sort of a big deal around it, but ultimately we're talking about a lot of meaningless exhibition games. And on one hand, as a fan of college football, you hate to see it. On the other, knowing what we saw with Jalen Smith a couple years ago for Notre Dame, blew out his knee, took him a year and a half to get back to the Cowboys. If, in fact, a guy like Josh Rosen would decide, hey, look, sorry, 
Uh, I just need to do what's best for me. That would not surprise me at all. So that, in and of itself... Would lower um, confidence, Yeah, right? combined with the fact that UCLA also lost its coach is something I'm considering when I'm looking at the Kansas State-UCLA game. For sure. So we're down to just a couple of minutes on college football. Let's talk about playoffs. What do you, what do you, how do you see this thing unfolding? I like Alabama over Clemson. Um, I, I, I root for Clemson over Alabama, yeah, like, but there's... The re- but there's a lot, I think, in Alabama's corner in terms of who I actually think is going to win the game. So I'd go Alabama over Clemson. Do you believe in their quarterback? Sometimes. Um, unfortunately, I think we've seen him break down a little bit more against the better teams that mm-hmm. he's faced. And that was a big storyline going into the playoffs last season. Um, and Alabama's team as a whole was good enough to get it done. But, uh, no, I'm not overwhelmingly confident there. I was really struck. I was around some NFL scouts a week or two ago, and they were talking about receivers. They were talking about Calvin Ridley. Yeah. And, and so they were focusing on the receiver, but they were, they were the, the way they talked about his QB, Jalen Hurts, was really rough. I mean, they are distinctly not impressed with what he's been doing so far. Now, maybe it's going to be enough in the college game, and he's, he's surrounded by a great cast. Okay, you like him to survive Clemson. How about on the other bracket? I like Oklahoma. Oh, yeah? I like Oklahoma. And um, I've gone back and forth on this one. I'm going to go Oklahoma because there is such tremendous momentum with them on offense. And Mm -hmm. it seems one of the things that I like to look for is who got better from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And with all the uncertainty of a new coach and a new cast of characters on the Oklahoma offense, they just got better as the year wore on. And And they started out pretty good. And they started out pretty good. So my question isn't so much can Georgia's defense stop Oklahoma's offense. To some degree, they'll probably curtail them. My bigger question is is can Georgia's offense score with Oklahoma's offense? If this devolves into a shootout, which right. could happen, who do I have more confidence in? And I have more confidence in the Heisman Trophy winner, yeah, Baker Mayfield. Sure, sure, sure. Now, that's gonna, if it plays out the way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tee up this beautiful matchup of one of the best offenses we've seen in college football in a while against a perennially great defense. And we and people, you know, the SEC is like we play defense. These other guys and and the, and the Big Twelve is kind of disrespected. But there's always this question: Is it because Big Twelve offenses are that much better, or is it because the Big Twelve defenses are that bad? We're going to find out. Well, yeah, we, we might will. find out. We might find out. Well, we're going to find out the semi at least with the Georgia Oklahoma matchup. All right. So that's a quick take, a quick spin around the bowl landscape in college football. We need to turn our eyes to Sundays then and ask about the NFL. Moneyball matchups. All right, so there is some regular season football still to be played, at least in the professional ranks. We've got a slate on this weekend, of course, and I'm curious, guys, this time of week, we're always asking, what games are you most interested in? What's jumping out to you? Well, I think there are four massive games yeah. in the NFL yeah. this, week, uh, and this five, week. A fifth, not quite massive. But here are the four that I've got. Um, not that I'm going to... I'll tell you which one caught my eye in a second, but for a reason. Chargers at Chiefs is obviously an extremely meaningful game. Huge. Both teams sitting at seven and six. Mm-hmm. The losers are for the division, really. For the division. And, you know, the Chargers have won seven of nine. I mean, they started 0 and 4. They yeah. fought back to seven and, man, and six. Man, have the Chiefs fallen off since. I know. And we're going to find out if the Chargers are real this week because yep. Chargers at Chiefs is not an easy task for the Chargers at all. You know, Aaron Rodgers, I, it, it came up on my phone earlier today as I was coming into work. They said he's cleared to play. So is he playing this week? Is So Panthers-Packers all of a sudden becomes a very intriguing game. Seahawks- Oh, oh let's stay with that for a second. Yeah. Because didn't it just, don't you, don't, you, don't you cringe a little bit to hear about him coming back that quickly? What happened with Romo 
you know, he, he had trouble with collarbones. He comes back and he goes out like like one sack and he's out for his career. That's it. Yeah. I mean, he was late in his career, but I mean, it's hard to imagine an NFL quarterback coming back with a not fully healed collarbone. Those things take a beating every Sunday. Yeah, and I mean, you know, at it, it, Green Bay, it's almost, I mean, I, I think if they hadn't been on this knife's edge of playoff contention, I don't on. think we'd be seeing Rodgers, right? Because it, it is pretty risky to bring him back basically after the minimum amount of time. Yeah, and then, of course, you also have the Seahawks-Rams game. Now, that's crucial not just for the Rams and their playoff seeding, but the Seahawks lose. They're 8-6. and six. Yeah. That ain't going in the NFC. So, Especially because I mean, they have to still play Dallas, and I, 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 they've got a pretty tough schedule Right, so up. the Seahawks, yeah. and it's a home game. This is a crucial game. Yeah. But, of course, the one that caught my eye is the one that Shane and I at the break were passing notes, Patriots at Steelers. Yeah. Now, the thing that this people basically an AFC final. Are no, you kidding well, me? Here's well, the thing. well, here's the thing that the people aren't paying attention to. If the Patriots lose, they're actually if the Patriots lose and the Jaguars win, they'd both be ten and four, but the Patriots would have a worse conference record. So if the regular season ended after this week, the Patriots would be the three seed. I'm going to use the Shane Jensen rule, means they have to play an extra game. Yeah. And the AFC championship game is going to be on the road. So if you want to talk about a game with high leverage, like and I was thinking about the college yeah. games this year that had high leverage with Ty here, the Auburn-Georgia game had high leverage. The Miami-Clemson game had ridiculously high leverage as to who could be the national champion. That Steelers-Patriot game, if the Patriots lose, let's talk about it. They slip from the one seed to the likely three seed, and it means they have to play an extra game and the AFC Championship games on the road. Yeah, I don't know a more high I mean, leverage have, game than they that. Will, they will presumably have to go through, therefore, Jacksonville and Pittsburgh to the Super Bowl as opposed to just getting the best of those two. I think y'all are a little, a little high on Jacksonville yet. We're projecting them out not quite 11 wins, so they must have a little bit of a tougher schedule. We, we think the Pats can drop a game and still, and still clip. Oh, Jacksonville. Well, let me just say the it's one. Not, let's just say it's not definitive that if they lose to Pittsburgh, they're going to get trumped by Jacksonville. No, okay, I, no, it's not definitive. I agree with that. But... I'm saying if the season ended, the other yeah. stat I looked at, which comparing Jacksonville and New England, which was interesting. I know this is just a couple yeah. of stats. Jacksonville has scored more points than New England and given up less points than New England this year. So people <laughs> disrespect Jacksonville. Jacksonville after the Eagles yeah. and the Rams have the third-best point differential in the league. But they've Not actually that, scored more than what, New England and given up what, less. What is, the one te- what is the one team that has always, like, through this amazing run that New England's had, what is the one team that kind of has given them the most trouble? The New York Giants, who used to run the New York Giants. Tom Coughlin, who now runs Jacksonville. Tom Coughlin. <laughs> He's going to come back. He's the kryptonite? Yeah, he's the kryptonite. He's the kryptonite. Wow. Tell me about the Steelers. So last week this time, I named the Raven-Steelers game as the game of most interest to me for lots of reasons, but it turned out to be an epic. It was barely even a good game. I'm joking. It was a phenomenal Phenomenal game, obviously. It's one of the great rivalries in the NFL has been for the last, whatever, 10 or 15 years. To watch those Steelers, I know they barely beat a team that's barely above 500 at home, but... With that, with that receiver and that running back, I mean, my God, and that's scary, it, right? It's I don't know what you're really supposed to do. The Ravens have one of the best defenses. But in it's the scary NFL. too when you're giving up like 20 plus points yeah. to Jay Cutler, and then to like have that coming up on your schedule afterwards. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So it, Oof. the the Pats, the Pats uh. <laughs> Shane can stand in here as our proxy for Pats fans everywhere, being a little. It's bit worrying worried. to say the least. What about on the NFC side of things? We've been talking about the AFC. Well, I mean, obviously, I think you know. You I mean, like, be, be, we know the the Ram the, that Rams Eagles game. In Rams fact, Eagles, Sunday, man. I mean, we we've been kind of complaining a little bit throughout the season about like you know the kind of you know there haven't been that many games. This last this past weekend had like three or four amazing games on Sunday. Mm-hmm. 
stinker on Monday, but like amazing games on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know that Rams Eagles game was phenomenal. What did this you, Ravens Steelers game was phenomenal? What did you take away from the from about the Rams from that? Where are you on the Rams? I'm pretty high on them actually after after that game. I mean that felt like a playoff game that Rams Eagles game. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know the narrative afterwards is all about Wentz and stuff like that. But that was an amazing game, and they both looked fantastic. I I wouldn't be surprised if, you know. Both those teams made it to the think, uh, NFC well, Championship game. I think what you're, what you're seeing from the Rams is, you know, given how bad they were last season, yeah. we're seeing they're highly competitive yeah. against what most people agree are the best teams. Yeah. If they play well, I don't know if they're going to win, but against the Seahawks this week, yeah, why can't the Rams be in the NFC Championship game? Another fun fact, three of the four division winners, actually, yeah, three of the four division winners are probably going to have quarterbacks that used to be quarterbacks for the Rams. <laughs> Case Keenum, Jared Goff. That is bizarre. And uh, uh, the, uh, wait, what am I thinking now? Well, there must be, maybe there's Nick, Nick Foles. Foles. Right, Nick Foles, of course. I mean, yeah, give, there we go. Given how bad the Rams have been for how long, that's that's pretty stunning. What about the Saints and the Vikings, guys? Come on, the Saints yeah. and Vikings. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, see, it's just stacked now. I mean, it is there's stacked. three or four Those teams are, that could a, legitimately go. We make we make New Orleans and Minnesota tied for the second best in the in the league. So mm-hmm. not just NFC, but mm-hmm. you know, following the Pats and then Seattle right behind them. I mean, it's just a, a clump up there. So you're obviously bringing the concern of every Eagles fan, which is let's imagine we don't get the home field advantage against either Minnesota or New Orleans. The Massey Peabody <laughs> line would have the Eagles as a fairly significant underdog now going to Minnesota or New Orleans. Well, they're flipped, right? Because before Wentz goes out, we'd have been almost a right. push if yeah. they had to go there. But now we put them about a point below those teams anyway. So now and it's then a if they four have to travel, point. it's going to be a four point. So that game. might be a sixty forty game then. So yeah, I'm saying like not having home field against those two teams would be a big deal for the Eagles. So how do you handicap it now? We're down to just I don't know a minute here. How do you handicap the NFC without Wentz? I think the Eagles, because they don't have an extremely difficult schedule, my quick take is, I think they'll hold on. I don't know if they'll be the one seed, but I think, I think they'll, they'll be make the one it, or two. They'll, they'll get the bye. They'll get the bye week. They'll get the bye, and that's obviously hugely helpful. Okay. It's going to be fun to play out, see played out here over the next couple of weeks. The NFC is stacked, but there's interesting races over there in the AFC as well. And now we've got Patriot angst. It's always fun when we have Patriot angst. It's like Yankee angst. It's yeah, no, no, it's, no. It's just much better. I can much almost better. feel the people's <laughs> eyes rolling from, from, from this side of the radio. That's right. All right, guys. Well, listen, man, That's that was a lot of fun. Ty, especially. Appreciate you Thank making you. the drive down Thank here. Thank you for the invite. Loved having you. Love Thank your you. work. Keep it up. That's Ty Hildebrandt. He guested for about the last hour and a half on the show. He is the co-host and creator of Solid, The Solid Verbal. The Solid Verbal is a fantastic podcast on college football. They've been going at it for about 10 years. He and his partner, Dan Rubenstein. You can follow Ty on Twitter at, at Ty Hildebrandt. Very straightforward. Thanks to Neil Hornsby, our guest, the co-founder, the fo- founder and COO of Pro Football Focus. We had him on here for about a half an hour as well. This has been Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Um, Howdy and best to Adi, who will be back eventually. Maddie Datz, producer, boss man. Appreciate the work. Daniel Bruno, always a delight. Appreciate your listening. We'll be back next week. One more show before Christmas. Don't miss it a week from now. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.